Father, we ask you to fill our hearts with the knowledge of the truth about Jesus. God, we know we are living in a world that is absent of peace. Father, our lives are daily reminders that conflict and worry and anxiety and heaviness, Father, are a part of all of our lives. And Father, it's almost like every moment that we live, we draw in another breath and encounter another problem, another issue, another thing that would rob us of peace. And so, Father, I'm asking you for this morning that every worried, troubled heart that gathers in this place, every stress-filled, conflicted person under the sound of my voice would see Jesus, the real and living Jesus, the one who has come and is coming again, the real Jesus who brings us peace. And may we know today Beyond the stress and strain of life, beyond the wars and rumors of wars, beyond the conflict that marks not only our world, but our own families, may we know the real and true and lasting peace that Jesus came to bring. And Father, if that's going to happen, you have to do it. So we ask that by the power of your Holy Spirit today, you would pour out your presence among us. You would be our teacher. Lord, teach us about Jesus. Fix our eyes on Him this Christmas. Fill our lives with Him that He would bring us peace today. And we ask all of these things in Jesus' name and all of God's people said, amen, amen. If you have your Bibles, I want to invite you to turn to Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5. This morning, of course, we are continuing our Advent series. And I want to remind you that last week we said that Advent means arrival or coming. And when we're celebrating Advent, there's an intentional double meaning that I mentioned about that word Advent or arrival or coming. What I said last week was this, is that as we celebrate Advent, we look back and we, we celebrate that Christ came into this world 2,000 years ago at Christmas. And during Advent, we look forward and anticipate with celebration the coming of Jesus again, the arrival of Christ into this world where he will finish every good work that he began. But one thing I didn't share last week that I want you to know this morning is there's actually a third meaning to the word arrival. And it's not just that we look back and we we anticipate or we, we celebrate the arrival of Christ at Christmas or that we look forward and prepare our hearts for the arrival of Christ at his second coming. There's an arrival of Jesus that we celebrate today that's about today. What I mean by that is that Jesus arrives in our lives. He comes to us where we are and in the brokenness of our own story, Jesus comes as we trust in him. And so at Advent, we celebrate the arrival of Jesus in us, in our individual stories. We celebrate his promise to transform our lives by his power as he literally lives in us. Just like we said at baptism earlier, not I, but Christ who lives in me becomes the joy and hope and peace and love of Advent. And so this morning, we really want to look not only back at the coming of Christ at Christmas and forward to the second coming, but we really want to look at our life today 
How does Christ arrive in us? How does he come to your life, my life, and give us peace? What does it even mean to live in the peace that Jesus came to bring? That's kind of the question that we want to ask this morning. What what are we talking about when we say that Jesus came into this world to bring us peace? Are we just talking about peace of mind that we get past the hustle and bustle and stress of the season or the conflict that does mark our families or our world in general? What, What is the peace that Jesus came to bring? And as I was praying over that, that's what led me to Romans chapter five. We see the foundation of peace that Jesus lays for us. The most important component of peace that Jesus came to bring. The kind of peace without which there isn't any other kind of peace. And that's what brings us to Romans chapter 5. And our text this morning will simply be verses 1 and 2. We've already heard it read, but let's read it again. Romans chapter 5, 1 and 2 says this. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God. Through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. This is the word of God for us this morning. And listen, this word is filled with powerful truth. As a matter of fact, the Protestant Reformation largely took place because God planted this truth deep into the heart of Martin Luther and stirred an entire reformation out of this. There there were nearly one million Protestants in France, known as the Huguenots, who either were killed or they were enslaved in the galleys of a Roman Catholic king because they would not recant their belief in the truth that's found in these verses. So we're looking at monumental truth in the life of Christianity, in the life of Christians. And here's my desire for this morning. I don't want to get cute or tricky at all. I just want us to look really closely, and I pray very clearly by the power of the Spirit, at just these two verses and unpack the plain, simple teaching that we find here in Romans chapter 5 about how we have peace, the kind of peace that Jesus came to bring. So let me go ahead and give you the big idea as I see it from this text. Here's this morning's big idea. Being justified by faith in Jesus brings peace and grace to us and glory to God. Being justified by faith in Jesus brings peace and grace to us And glory to God. That is exactly what these two verses are saying. Since we have been justified by faith, it says, we have peace with God through Christ. Guys, that's the fundamental peace that Jesus came to bring us. He came to bring us peace with God. And then along with that, we saw that we've gained access to a new standing, a standing before God that's based on grace and not our works. And that all together will bring good to us, but also bring great glory to God. So that's the text for this morning. That's our big idea. That's what I want us to walk through just a little bit at a time. And so let's take that big idea. Let's take this text and break it down just a little bit at a time, starting with this. We have been justified by faith In Jesus. That's what it says in verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith. Now, I know those are kind of churchy sounding words, so let's just think about what Paul is saying here. That word justified is a legal term that was used in the Roman court system, and it basically means to declare someone not guilty or to declare them right in the sight of the law. And just imagine the picture here 
A judge would preside over a trial. And once all the evidence had been presented, once the arguments had been made, the judge would have to render a verdict. And if the person was found to have done nothing wrong, to have fully kept the law, they were declared not guilty. They were justified. Makes sense, right? Okay, wow. I was really worried because I can't make that more simple. That's all that justified means. A judge declaring us not guilty or right in the sight of the law. And in our text, who is the judge? It's God himself. One day every man, woman, and child will stand before God as the judge of all mankind. And God will render his verdict over our lives. And there are two possible options. Just like in a courtroom here, there are basically two options for that verdict. God will either declare us guilty of sin and condemn us to hell, or he will declare us not guilty and grant us entrance into his presence in heaven. And that, that option, guys, in front of us is actually not good news. And here's why. The entire book of Romans to this point has been written, in the first three chapters particularly, has been written to tell us with crystal clarity that all of us are guilty before God and that we deserve in the guilt of our sin to be punished. Let me just walk through this a little bit. Romans chapter one, verse 18 says this, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against, what's the next word? All, all unrighteousness, all ungodliness. God's wrath, his anger over sin, is being revealed in this letter, in the revelation of God, the revelation of truth, saying that God is rightfully angry over sin. And it's revealed to those who in their ungodliness and unrighteousness have suppressed the truth, have denied the reality. And what's that reality? Well, it goes on to say in verse 21, although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. They became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. What he says is this, that the central issue at the heart of all of our sin is that we have chosen not to honor God as God. In other words, we've attempted to overthrow the rule and the glory of God in our lives. That's what sin is. It's disobedience. It's living like you are God and that God is not. It's rebellion. It's high treason against God. And there's some who would say, man, that's really an overstatement. I know I've messed up, but I would hardly say that I've tried to overthrow the rule of God in my life or that I've wanted to be God. But the reality is this, that that's exactly what the Bible is saying. We have suppressed the truth that God is God. We've gone our own way. That's what sin is, not going God's way and going our own. And in doing that, We've rebelled against almighty God. And listen, friend, the fact that we don't see how serious our sin is reveals just how serious our sin issue actually is. We don't see God in the glorious way that he is. We don't rightfully acknowledge that he is so glorious that to rebel against him is high treason in the court of heaven. And it goes on to say in Romans 1, 29 to 32, they were filled with all manner of unrighteousness. He begins to list some of what that looks like. Evil, covetousness, wanting something that doesn't belong to you. Malice, they're full. Look at, notice that's, that's present tense. It's not just something that happened. It's the condition of men's heart now, our hearts. They're full of envy. 
murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Those are all the ways and many more in addition to them that we have chosen not to honor God as God and give him thanks and glory. It says, though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Can you think of any better way to describe the world in which we live but that we practice unrighteous deeds and give approval to the practice of unrighteous deeds? This is the condition of our world that's summarized then in a verse that many of us are familiar with. Romans 3.23 says this, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We have fallen short of God's glory in his holiness, his righteous standard. What he says is morally perfect and good. We've fallen short and that is what sin is. And so the first three chapters of Romans paint a grim picture of us and all of humanity says that in the courtroom of God, all of us are counted as having sinned. We've made ourselves enemies of God. We're deserving of punishment from God. And listen, friend, when we talk about the peace that we need, we have to start here. We've made ourselves enemies of God, and there's nothing more important than that. You cannot have peace of mind when you realize you have declared war against God himself. And to think you're going to stand accountable for him at judgment or to him at judgment, what does it matter? Listen, what does it matter how much money you have or how smooth your holiday season goes or how much stress you do or don't have in your job? What do those things matter if we are destined to be condemned by God for our sin? As we talk about the peace that Jesus came to bring, we have to start here. The Bible starts here. There is a great dilemma. We, in our sin, have rebelled against God. God, in his holiness, must judge our sin. And the great dilemma that we are in is then how could God possibly justify us? Remember what that means. Declare us not guilty. Declare us right if all of us have sinned. That's the big problem in this text that we have to see how God has overcome. Well, the first word of Romans 5.1 is the word therefore. That's a reference to everything that's been said to this point. So let's just back up and see what the therefore is there for. See what I did there? Really tricky. What did Paul say between Romans 3.23, the declaration that all have sinned, and Romans 5.1, that we have been justified by faith? Is the declaration of God. What happened? Well, Romans 3.23. Look at this. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Most of us memorized that growing up. I encourage you, commit the rest of it to your memory. Verse 24 says this. And are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he, God, look at this, so that God might be just 
and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Keep looking at those verses. Verse 24 says, our justification, God saying not guilty, righteous in the sight of the law. That comes, verse 24 says, as a gift of God's grace. That means it's something given to us, not something that we earn by our own works. He'll unpack more in chapter four that if you work for something, it's not a gift, it's a wage. And this is a gift. Something we don't work for, something we receive by grace. Then Paul goes on to say that justification occurs through redemption that is in Christ whom God put forward as a propitiation. Don't you love propitiation? You should. We got to start learning some words, by the way, and stop laying these aside. This is a good one. A propitiation is a reference to an appeasing sacrifice. A sacrifice that was made to a God, a God who was angry with people. They would make a sacrifice and in their mind they would call it a propitiation because their desire was to take that God and make him no longer angry with them but pleased with them. So they would offer a sacrifice and that was a word that was used in pagan culture, in pagan circles. They would offer their sacrifices to a God they imagined was angry with them and they would want it to be a propitiation Something that would turn his heart from anger to pleasure in them. And that's the word the Holy Spirit puts here through Paul's writing. He says, God sent his son Jesus to be the propitiation. To be the sacrifice who would be offered to take God and and to absorb his wrath. His anger over sin and please him in us. That's what happens, guys. What happens is that Jesus is punished in our place on our behalf so we would not be punished. And it says here in verse 25, this was to show God's righteousness. That's really important. It helps us solve a problem, that problem of how can God be a good judge and not punish our sin? He wouldn't be just and we would not see justice done if he simply let us go free. That's not what the gospel says. God is not a God who simply lets sin go free. That's unjust. I don't know if you guys remember this, but probably the most famous court case in my lifetime was a man named Orenthal James Simpson who was tried for heinous crimes. We all followed that in the press. We watched it on TV. It was kind of that first big television court drama that we got to see unfold in front of us. And I remember I was in high school and it's first kind of news event that I'd followed that closely. And there was new evidence over and over presented. And it was a, it was a circus. Remember that? Remember the, the glove, right? He's in that courtroom and he's desperately making every attempt to make it look like he's attempting to put the glove on. And Johnny's over the shoulder. If it does not fit, you must acquit. We're thinking, what in the world's going on here? I will never forget when that verdict came down. You may have been there, and I know I'm opening a can of worms on the opinion of that court. But I remember thinking, it it is undeniable. It seems unbelievable that this guy is, is guilty. He's guilty. All of the evidence seems to point in that way. And when the the verdict came back not guilty, I remember thinking, how in the world is this just? It's wrong. It's wrong. And let me tell you this infinitely more. If God were to simply let us go free because he's good-natured, because he likes us, he would not be just. 
It would be, it would be non-just, unrighteous. That's why Paul says, so that he would be just in justifying us, something had to be done. And that's when God sent his son to be a sacrifice, to go to the cross of Christ and bear our sin in our place. Yes, we have sinned. And yes, our sin must be punished. And there are many of us who hear this and you need to hear this as the good news it is because you know you've sinned. And you know that it is justice that you would pay for your sin. And some of us cannot help but know our sin and feel this foreboding about our future. Like we're just waiting for the moment when God drops the hammer on our sin. Somebody know what I'm talking about? We know what we've done. And it's not good. And we just think there's a day that has to come. No matter how good my life's going, there's a day where God's going to drop the hammer. Because I was wrong. And that was wrong. Can I tell you the good news? God already dropped the hammer at the cross of Jesus Christ. He has punished your sin. All of it, every last bit of it, every shred of unrighteousness was punished at the cross of Jesus. If you are willing to trust Jesus, your sin has been punished at the cross. My sin, oh the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to his cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, oh my soul. When the enemy comes to your mind, condemning you rightfully for the sin you know you've committed, take that devil to the cross and say, my sin has been punished. Yes, I did it. But yes, Jesus did that. And throw him into a real loop by saying, he's my propitiation. He'll know what you mean. But here's the great news about the good news. There's more to justification than just Jesus taking our punishment. Remember what justification is. It's a declaration that not only are we not guilty, but that we're right. We're righteous. So go back to the courtroom scene. Imagine that you had accrued a million dollars in speeding tickets, which is how my wife accuses me of driving. And... Just as the judge was sentencing you to pay that million-dollar fine, a rich man steps forward to pay the fine on your behalf. That'd be awesome, wouldn't it? And in some way, that is what Jesus did for us. And that's how a lot of us think about what Jesus did. It is awesome, and it is what Jesus did. He did that at the cross. He paid the penalty for our sin. But someone paying our penalty is not the same as being found not guilty, is it? That's like being found guilty, but being forgiven of your debt. And certainly Jesus did forgive our debt at salvation, but there's even more. Because justification is what happens when the judge says, you're not guilty, you're right in the sight of the law. How does that happen? Well, let's back up again. Romans 4, 22 through 25 says this. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be 
counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Romans 4 uses the example of Abraham to show us God has always and only justified people on the basis of faith. So when verse 22 says, his faith was counted to him as righteousness, that's referring to Abraham. But verse 23 says, that's not only true for Abraham, that's true for us. He says, we will be counted righteous when we trust and believe in God's work through Jesus in his life, death, and resurrection. That word counted is a bookkeeping term. Okay, it's, it's sometimes translated reckoned or credited. I love that word, credited. And I don't know why I like the word credit so much, but credited. It's a, it's a credit that goes to your account when you're accounting for the money that you have versus the money that you've spent. Do you guys know that's something you should do regularly? Account for the money you have Versus the money that you've spent. That's the word that that God's using here. He says it's counted to us. Here's the idea. That God is not only a judge. In a sense, God is a judge who's operating as a bookkeeper of our spiritual account. He's He's evaluating our status. He's calculating our righteousness and he's calculating our sin. And a lot of us have this idea that as long as my good can outweigh my bad, I'll end up with a credit. But here's what we saw. Romans 1 and 2 and 3 told us we have no hope of ending up with a credit because we're all spiritually bankrupt in our sin. you got a big old overdraft coming in your righteousness account. But in our spiritual bankruptcy, God has made a way for our spiritual account to be credited with his righteousness. So that when God judges us, listen... He doesn't just forgive our sin debt. He counts us to have done every good thing that we should have done. To have lived up to his glorious standard. The one we failed to live up to in Romans 3.23. The glory of God. He counts us to have lived up to his glorious righteousness. And you might ask, how does he do that? 2 Corinthians 5.21 says this. For our sake, he, meaning God, made him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him, in Christ, we might become the righteousness of God. At the cross of Jesus, a credit exchange took place. God credited our sin to Jesus. It's like God charged the debt of our sin to Christ's account. Like your mortgage got credited to Elon Musk. That'd be a whole lot of fun, wouldn't it? On lots of fronts. As the righteous judge, God credited our sin to Jesus, but there was another credit exchange. God credited Christ's righteousness to us. He doesn't just let our account go to zero. He made a deposit of the righteousness of Christ. Now, let me ask you this. How much righteousness does Jesus have? All of it. (laughs) More than enough, more than you need. God fills your spiritual bank account with his own righteousness. He credits our spiritual account to be filled with the righteousness of Jesus. Here's the reality. Through faith in Christ, God does a miracle. Did you know that? He did a miracle in you when you trusted in Jesus. He made you something new. He united you to Jesus. 
In a way that our sin could be credited to Christ and punished at the cross. And Christ's righteousness can be credited to us and rewarded in us because of Jesus in us. We are gifted grace gifted righteousness through Christ. And the reality is this, Jesus has done it all. He's obeyed God the Father in every way that you and I have failed to obey him. He's lived up to the standard of God's glory. He's done it all. And just like Jesus died on our behalf, he's lived on our behalf. He lived out perfect righteousness for us. And here's what that means. When God justifies us, he really means what he's saying. By the miracle of union with Christ, Jesus now living in us and being one with us, God the Father looks at us and sees Christ's credit on our account. And he declares us to be righteous because we're imputed with the righteousness of Christ. Listen to me. If you are trusting in Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you are right in the sight of God. Not because of any good work that you have ever done or will ever do. You won't and can't earn that standing from God. You know what it is? It's a gift of grace that comes through faith in Jesus. Jesus did it all. The work is finished. He came at Christmas. And as he came at Christmas, he came to bring you peace with God through his perfect life, his sacrificial death, and his glorious resurrection. And through faith in Jesus, Christ himself will enter your life and miraculously unite you to his perfect righteousness so that you can be justified, declared righteous by God himself. Merry Christmas, Merritt Island and Bedford Falls, you old building and loan. Sorry, I got to go in there. Comes out of you. Listen, when that is true of you, and that's the basis of 5-1, your relationship with God, your whole life is dramatically changed. That's the next part of our big idea. And I know what you're thinking. He spent 28 minutes on the first part of our big idea. We're almost done. But it gets really good. Because being justified by faith in Jesus brings peace and grace to us. Look at verses 1 and 2 again of our text. Therefore, since we've been justified by faith, all that that means of our union with Christ, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. Now, don't answer this out loud, but I want you to just think for this for just a moment. Just think about this question. What kind of relationship does God the Father have with Jesus? Just think about it. What would you think their relationship is like? Is God the Father disappointed in him? Is he frustrated? Is he pleased? Does God the Father barely put up with Jesus? Does he, does he like him? What's their relationship like? Well, listen, when you're trusting in Jesus, your relationship with God the Father is an extension of his relationship with Jesus because you're united 
with Jesus. So God the Father treats you like he treats Jesus. Listen, he's as pleased with you as you are pleasing in Christ. He's as pleased with you as he is pleased with Jesus because you're united to Jesus and his righteousness has become your righteousness. Listen, there's some really good news for Christmas. God loves you and God likes you too. I'm not kidding. Because there are some of us who can hardly believe that. We think, I know God loves me. The B-I-B-L-E tells me so. But boy, I can't imagine that he likes me. You want to know how God feels about you? He has the affection for you that he has for his own dear son because you are united to Jesus and Jesus in his righteousness imputes his favor with God to you. So God loves you and he likes you and you are at peace. You see that word peace? It's not just referring to the absence of conflict. In the scriptures, the word peace is the absence of conflict. That, that, that conflict between us and God as enemies of God and our sin, that's been crushed, that's been done away with. But peace is also the presence of wholeness or wellness. Jesus didn't come to merely negotiate a ceasefire with God where he would release us from hell and then make us live forever without him. That's not the gospel. Jesus came not only to crush the hostility between us and God, but to purchase our peace, to purchase our wholeness, our well-being in Christ You've been adopted into God's family. Your heavenly father is eternally committed to take care of you by his power and authority. That's our new standing Paul refers to in verse 2. It's a standing that's based on God's grace to us in Jesus. Grace is a gift that unites us to Christ, makes us righteous in him, redeems us by Jesus from our sin, restores us in Christ to a right relationship with God. That word access, I love that word access, but it's kind of misleading in the English. It makes it seem like there's a secret room somewhere in heaven. And we got access to go in it if we can find our way and walk into that door. But that's not what this word is referring to. The emphasis in that word access in the original language in the New Testament is not an emphasis on us in that we access it and walk into it. The emphasis is on the work of Jesus. It's that we have gained access to a room because Jesus carried us into it. You're already there in Christ. You're in a place of grace if you're trusting in Christ. You have a new standing with God as your father. You have peace with God that not only releases you from the punishment of your sin, but places you in a position of blessing where God commits all of his mighty power as the sovereign Lord of heaven and earth to your well-being as your heavenly father in Christ. That's the kind of peace that Jesus came to bring. And I know we've talked a lot about theological language, but this is the most practical thing in all of the world. Because when we have that kind of peace, a commitment from God toward our well-being, our shalom, the fullness and wellness of our life, when we have that kind of peace with God, we can live with amazing peace within. Let me give you some illustrations. 
You don't have to live in guilt and shame over your past because you have been gifted the righteousness of Christ and stand completely forgiven in him. You do not have to live in anxious worry over anything in your presence because your loving heavenly father is watching over you and cares with you with the same affection he has for his dear son, Jesus. You can lay aside the paranoia that God is constantly changing his mind about you based on how good you feel you're doing in the Christian life because Jesus is your righteousness and God considers you as righteous as Jesus. You can enter the presence of God with bold confidence in prayer, knowing his throne is a throne of mercy and grace where you find help in your time of need. You can ask him for every good gift because Jesus gives you access into a new standing of grace at the throne room of God. You can live with power over the forces of darkness in this world because Jesus has united you to his victorious resurrection life of righteousness. And don't you know, the darkness of this world isn't stronger than the resurrection power of our Christ. You can have peace within even as you live in a world that's falling apart at the seams. By the way, you're living in a world that's fallen apart at the seams because God is working for you to bring all of this thing, even the insanity of a world gone mad, to work together for your well-being, your good and his glory. The peace we have with God that brings new standing of grace with him is a peace that surpasses understanding and guards our hearts and minds in a world gone mad. Jesus came to bring you peace with God that brings you peace within. And here's the last thing as we close, the final part of our big idea. Being justified by faith in Jesus not only brings peace and grace to us, it brings glory to God. Romans 5.2 says, we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. That word rejoice is sometimes translated as boast. It means a joyful boasting in the confidence that we have. That God is glorious and in the end, when all is said and done, he's going to be glorified. Now listen, joy is next week's Advent theme. So we're going to start just a little bit early and just say this. What this essentially is saying is that when we really understand the peace that we have with God, we have a confident joy that God will follow through with every promise he has made. That's why it says, you have been justified, not you will be justified. Because when God says it, it's as good as done. And he said, it's all gonna be just fine. Even more, it's all gonna be glorious when you're trusting in Jesus. So how do we respond? We say, yes! We rejoice, confident boast in Jesus. And so here's how we respond to this message. One, we rest in peace. I don't mean we die. Don't get me wrong. But that's coming. We'll talk about it next time. We rest in the peace we have in Christ. We stop working to make God pleased with us. And we trust that Jesus already worked to make God pleased with us. We rest in the peace knowing that our Father in heaven is committed to our well-being. And he will make all things work together for good. We rest in peace. We rejoice 
in hope. We say, God, you are awesome. We say thank you for your unspeakable gift that you gave us at Christmas and Easter and is coming again. Rejoice in the hope that's yours because you have peace with God through Christ. Would you bow your heads in prayer with me this morning? If you've never placed your faith and trust in Jesus right now, I want to invite you to respond to the gospel, the good news. Acknowledge the truth of the Bible that you have sinned against God and there in your seat, in the quietness of your heart, would you just go before God and by faith, trust in Jesus. Just tell the Father that you are trusting in Jesus to make you right and keep you right with him. You're trusting in his work, his life, death, and resurrection, not your own work to make you pleasing and right in his sight. Call on Jesus to save you, claiming his promise to save by faith. Don't leave this place without knowing God is your father through Jesus as your Lord and Savior. Call on Jesus. For those of you who are trusting in Jesus, would you thank him? for his gracious gift to you. Right now, thank him that you are justified. Ask the Father to help you to understand and believe more and more that you are righteous in Christ because Christ is your righteousness. Father, to fill you with the Holy Spirit, that you would see and know and rejoice in the life of Jesus in you. Father, we thank you for this eternal truth. Father, these these religious sounding words like justified and propitiation and redemption the most practical things in all of life. Lord, seal them in our hearts. Let us see that they are all true for us because of Jesus. Infuse our celebration of Christmas with a celebration of Christ, that he came to be our righteousness, to bring us peace. And may we live by Christ's power and the peace he came to bring. You're a glorious God, and we praise you for your unspeakable gift to us in Jesus. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.